Lord where I should teach tonight and was planning to move to the Ark of the Covenant and just do not feel released to do that yet. Um, Lord was teaching me something uh, this week from Revelation and I really feel compelled to be vulnerable and share it with you. It does have a connection to the book of Exodus, and, and you'll, I hopeful, I hope, I'm hopeful that you'll be able to make that connection for yourself tonight as we begin to study, but would you just pray with me first? Father God, I thank you for your living word, that it's alive, that it's not just words on a page. I pray, Father, tonight that this word would be implanted in us, that we'd be transformed by it, that you'd open our eyes to see truths that we've never seen before, that you'd penetrate our hearts, Lord God, that you would restore our souls with it. And Father, that you would just give us greater revelation of who you are and what you want to do in our life as we begin to study your word now, I pray. Father, I pray that you would take my mouth and that you would just speak through me. I pray that, that I would just be a puppet on a string for you tonight and that you would wing your words into the hearts and the minds of these men and women, I pray. Grant revelation, Father, deep revelation of who you are, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don, if we have, uh, I didn't send you a graphic tonight, but if you can put up any of the old pictures that I have of the holy place with the table of presents and the lampstand and the altar of incense, that would be really good. I, I just want to, by way of uh, review tonight, I, I just want to remind you uh, that we've been studying that holy place. That's the second uh, room there as we go into the next one will be the Holy of Holies. And uh, this is part of the tabernacle. Uh, and, and you'll recall that we studied the lampstand the table of showbread and the altar of incense. The table of showbread, you'll remember, we, we called it also the table, uh, the bread of presence. And uh, we talked about Jesus being the bread of life, the thing that gives us uh, substance, substance, the thing that, that sustains us, the thing that fills us, and, uh, and how we have to be intentional about basking in his presence. That's where we find life. He is the bread of life. He is the thing that gives gives us life. That bread of presence is also the bread of face, and, and it means that we seek his face. As, as we read the written word, he is the living word, and he comes alive to us, and we encounter him as we study the word. We studied the altar of incense, which we discovered is a place of intercession, a place of prayer. We talked about the lampstand, the picture of the Holy Spirit, the oil, and, and the, the illumination that he brings in our life, and how Jesus is the light of the world, and he calls us to then take that light and be lights of the world in a, in a dark, dark place. And we talked about how the, the lampstand was the only uh, light in that holy place. There was no natural light. There weren't any windows. Uh, everything was heavily covered with badger skin, so it would have been dark in there. And the only light would have come from that lampstand. And we talked about how uh, illumination, we cannot eat of the bread of life without illumination of, the, of his Holy Spirit. We can't uh, pray and intercede without illumination. We can. We can do both of those things. But without the illumination of his Holy Spirit, it will be dry. When we eat of the bread of his presence without illumination from the Holy Spirit, without him shining his light on it, that bread will be stale. It'll be dry. If we try to pray uh, and intercede without illumination from the Holy Spirit, those, pray those uh, prayers will not have any fire behind them and they won't have any fragrance uh, left. And so we, we talked about the need for illumination in that uh, holy place. Now, I want you to think for a moment tonight, if I were to remove that lampstand from the holy place, what repercussions there would be from doing that? All right, do you have that picture in your mind? And with that, we'll begin to read Revelation chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 7. Now, I want you to remember these words are in red. This is Jesus speaking. They're the very words of Christ. One of these uh, months, I'm going to start a series just on the words in red. Uh, I really feel like it would be a a very uh, beneficial series if we began to study just Jesus' words for a while. Uh, because he means what he says. And, and so I don't want you to miss that even though this is in Revelation, it's in red. These are the words of Christ. So Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things he says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven gold, golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, somebody say nevertheless. You've done all this stuff well, and and I see your works, and I see your labor, and I see your patience, and I see your persevering in persecution. Nevertheless, I see you're looking really good on the outside. Outwardly, you appear to have it all together. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your, what? Lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Lampstand, repent, or I will remove your lampstand from its place. What have we said the lampstand was symbolic of? Illumination, your Holy Spirit, uh, uh, that, that Holy Spirit power, the illumination that comes from his presence. Keep that in mind as we look through this passage tonight. What is he saying to the church of Ephesus? That they had left their first love. They had lost their passion and their desire for him. And they they were running the risk that he would remove their lampstand, remove the illumination that they needed. Remember, we talked about eating of the bread of presence and and interceding and, and having no illumination from the Holy Spirit and how disastrous that would be. Don't lose sight of that as we study this passage. Remember, the tabernacle is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. Who performed the services in that holy place? Anybody? The priest, only the priest. And and remember, it was him who went into the holy place and he would keep the lamps full of oil. He would keep the, the lamps trimmed. In other words, he would remove the impurities that would interfere with how brightly the lamp would burn. That was the job of the priests. I love it. Uh, Jesus Christ, it's a picture of him being our high priest and his job. That The job of the priest is to remove those impurities that keep the lamp from growing dim. To fill the lamp with oil continuously. That was the job of the priest. And we have that job in our own life to be doing that for ourselves. But we have a high priest who takes his job seriously as well. And then he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in my hand, and I walk among the golden lampstands. Remember, we talked about the lampstands in the New Testament was symbolic of the church, symbolic of you and I. And he says, I walk among the lampstands, and I'm trimming their wicks, and I'm filling them with oil, and I'm attentive to those lampstands. The people on the outside of the holy place, are you with me? That They could know about the lampstand, but they were not familiar with it. The priest, it was his job to maintain those lampstands. Jesus' job, maintain us. Are you with us? He's familiar with us. He knows what our wicks look like. He knows how much oil is in us. Are you with me? 
He was saying that to the church of Ephesus. He was saying, I've been watching you, and I, I know you look really good on the outside. The church of Ephesus would have been like a mega church today. It would have been a pillar. This church looks super good on the outside. He says, I know your works. I know you're laboring. I know you're patient. I I know you've endured persecution and and you've come out on the other side. And and I know that you don't have any tolerance for for evil and others. I, I know that you're identifying false teachers. Way to go. Nevertheless. This I hold against you. I know that everybody coming into that church thinks they're hotsy-totsy. I know that they look like they have it all together. I know that they're doing, they're going through the religious motions. And if you had been an outsider looking in that church, you would have thought they had it all together. But Jesus, the God who sees, can I tell you, he is the God who sees. And while everything to the untrained eye looked good on the outward appearance, the God to whom nothing is hidden, can I tell you, nothing is hidden from his sight. He knew that something had changed in them inwardly, even though he says, I know your deeds. I know your labor. I know you can't bear those who are evil. And I know that you've persevered and you have patience and you've, never, you've labored for my name's sake. I know this about you. Nevertheless, something's changed in you. The fire has died out. You no longer have the passion you once had. You've left your first love. You see, Jesus approved of much of what he saw at the church of Ephesus, and he commended them for it. However, the nevertheless at verse 4 bothers me a lot. Nevertheless, in spite of that, you might be doing every religious thing well, he says. Nevertheless, you've left your first love. That word left there is fascinating to me. It's the same word as forgive. It means to send away. It means to let go. It means to disregard. It means to neglect is the one that gets me the most. You've neglected your first love. You're doing all this religious stuff. You're, you're serving. You're, you're laboring. You're, you're bearing with persecution. Nevertheless, you've neglected your first love. Does that bother anybody besides me? And he says, because of that, you run the risk of me removing your lampstand. It means to desert wrongfully, to leave one by not taking as a companion. Oh, a companion is somebody who wants to follow close with you, who wants to be by your side. You've left him. You've deserted him wrongfully. It says you've, you've, you've left your first love. That word first, it, it's not first in number, but it's first in time or place. It's first in rank. It's first in influence and honor. It's, it's, it's the best. You've left the best thing in your life. You've left the only one worthy of honor. You've left your priority, love, is what it means. You have your priorities messed up. You've left your first love. I'm sure they still loved Jesus, but the passion they had for him had died down. Church, I need to ask you, is the passion you have for Jesus dying down? Are your priorities out of whack? They were busy and they were going through the motions for him, making sure their service and actions pleased him, but their love and their passion for him was dying down. In other words, what he's saying by using that word first, meaning priority, he was saying there was a time when Jesus was their priority and they were passionate in their love for him and full of zeal, but now their priorities got out of order. And even though they were going through the religious motions, they were still a church, functioning as a church. They were doing all the right things, but they were in a backslidden state. One of the commentaries I read used that word backslidden state. And, and, and I thought, I need to, I know what it means. I was raised in a church that would always say, oh, you're backslidden. Or I, I knew what it meant, but I wanted to see what the, the, the real definition of that word was. And I looked it up in Webster's and it says, to relax, relapse into bad habits, to relapse into bad habits, sinful behavior, or undesirable activities. 
The Ellicott's commentary uh, said this about the church in Ephesus. He writes, There is at present little outward sign of decay in the church of Ephesus. They have resisted evil and false teachers. They have shown toil and endurance. But the great searcher of hearts, I love that. But the great searcher of hearts detects the almost imperceptible symptoms of incipient decay. He alone can tell the moment when love of truth is passing into a noisy, pharisaic zealotism, when men are settling down into a lower state of spiritual life than that which they once aimed at and once knew. Oh, you need to hear that again. When men are settling down into a lower state of spiritual life than that which they once aimed at and knew. Uh, have you left your first love? Have you settled down into a place of, of, of settling where, where you once aimed to know Jesus better? You once aimed to serve him with passion. You once loved him with all your heart, but now you've settled down into a lower state of spiritual life than that which you once knew and aimed at. That, my friends, is backsliding. Backsliding is, is sly, it's subtle, and it doesn't happen overnight. Jesus was saying, even though by all external appearances, the church at Ephesus looked good outwardly, they looked religious, he still categorized them as fallen. Look at his words. He says, nevertheless, this I have against you that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. That word shocks me. Because if you think of somebody who's fallen, a Christian who's fallen, what do you think about? Maybe somebody who's had an affair and left their spouse for another love. Maybe you think of somebody who left the church and turned their back on God. Or maybe you look at somebody who's fallen as, as somebody who came out of the closet and is pursuing a homosexual lifestyle. Or maybe you look at somebody who's fallen as, as, as somebody who, I don't know, has, is often a drug-induced haze or, or an alcoholic binge or, or someone who's being nasty and unkind and you say, oh, that person's fallen. But Jesus doesn't define fallen that way. He defines fallen as someone who has neglected their first love. Someone who, who has left their priority with the Lord. The tense that's used in the Greek for that word fallen isn't something that's, uh, that's happening at the moment or is about to happen, but rather it's already taken place. In other words, they're living, they're going to, through the religious motions, they're doing all that a church does, but they're doing it in a fallen state, and they don't even recognize it. Church, does that grieve anybody but me? Doing all those good things, laboring and serving the Lord, not bearing with those who are evil, pointing out evil. Being patient, hating even evil deeds in others, and yet living in a fallen state. Uh, I wonder how many of us that statement points to tonight. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. It says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. Oh, can I tell you, there is no one in this room tonight hidden from his sight. But all things, somebody say all things. All things are naked and open to the eyes to him to whom we must give account. Can I tell you all things? That means all things are laid naked and open to, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, church. See, we're not preaching this anymore, but that is the word of God. That nothing is hidden from his sight. Whatever you're doing behind closed doors that you think doesn't matter and that you're getting away with, can I promise you that all things are laid open and naked to the eyes of him who we must give account. And see, it doesn't matter to us anymore because we've left, we're neglecting our first love. When you love somebody with all of your heart, you don't want to do anything to hurt them. You don't want to do anything to offend them. You protect them with everything you have because you love them with all of your 
hurt. You see, it's only when you neglect them, when you walk away from them, when they don't seem to matter to you as much anymore, when you're so busy over here with your own stuff, it's only then that you can hurt them and you don't even think about it. Have you neglected your first love? You see, Jesus is not impressed with our church attendance. I, I'm sorry to hurt your feelings because I, I know we kind of like check it off the list. He's not impressed with your church attendance. I, Dave's a great pastor. You don't want to miss church with him. But, but I'm telling you, Jesus is not impressed with your church attendance. He's not impressed with your lofty prayers. He's not impressed with, with your super spirituality and how many scripture verses you can quote. He is concerned about your intimacy with him. He's concerned that he's your first love, that he's your priority, that he is the only thing that matters to you. People all around could have been impressed with the Ephesian church, but nothing was hidden from Jesus' sight. He knew they were fallen. Flip back to 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. There's Acts, there's Romans 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 1st Corinthians 4, 18 through 21. Now some are puffed up as though I were coming to you. I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And I will know not the words of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The kingdom of God is not in word. It's not about you saying the right thing. It's not about you being able to quote all kinds of scripture. It's not about you being able to say, hallelujah, sister, praise the Lord, brother. Glory be. It's been a great, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? It's, it's not about words. It's about power. And if he's living in you and you haven't forsaken your first love, you have power. I don't know about you, I don't want to be religious, going through the motions, but having lost my first love, no longer loving him passionately like I first did. He says, nevertheless, this I hold against you. Oh, that grieves my soul. I can't even tell you how much that hurts me. He holds this against them. See, some of your translations will say, I somewhat hold this against you. That word is not in the original Greek. The commentators I read said that some trans Bible translators put somewhat in there to diminish the impact of this. That, that these Bible translators couldn't bear that, that Jesus said, I'm holding this against you. And so they put somewhat in there. That is not in the original language. Jesus was saying, I hold this against you. Hmm. We work with men who have sexual addictions and Pornography addictions, which, by the way, Ian, love your T-shirt. Love it, love it, love it, love it. And, and what really is so hard for me is, is we have this thing called D-Day. But the men that we work with, D-Day is Discovery Day. It's the day that their wives discovered they had other lovers. It's the day their wives discovered that they were no longer their priority. It's the day their wives discovered that, that someone else had taken their place, that, that their love and devotion was going to somebody else. Oh, can I tell you, it's D-Day for some of us. It's D-Day because Jesus has discovered that our hearts are not purely his, that we have other lovers, that, that we're sharing our love for him with other lovers, that we're dividing our time with him with other lovers. It's D-Day. Ask any woman who's gone through a D-Day. It's one of the most painful, horrific days of their life. When you discover that your husband's heart has not been totally committed to you, it's horrible. Most women that we deal with have post-traumatic stress disorder because they, 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 nothing could ever have prepared them to hear the words that their husband was not completely theirs. Can you hear those words now differently from Jesus? Nevertheless, I hold this against you. You've neglected me, your first love. You've left me for another. You're dividing your, your, your passion and your desire between me and somebody else. And I hold it against you. 
I hold it against you. But, but here's the thing I love about Jesus. He gives us then the answer to fixing what he holds against us. Flip back to Revelation 2. And he says, I want you to do two things or three things. He says, I want you to remember. Somebody say remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Number two, repent. Number three, do the first works or else I'll come to you and remove your lampstand. So remember, repent, and return to what you were doing before. That word re remember is, is interesting there. It means to remember what it first uh, felt like when you first came to Christ and compare it to where you are now. It means to realize, to compare it and realize how far you've fallen away from that. Do you remember your first love? Do you remember that giddy feeling that you had, like you couldn't wait to talk to them and you, you looked good all the time? Every, you, whoa, you worked really hard to look good, to say just the right thing, to be sweet and kind and, and to never offend them and to never say anything wrong and whatever they wanted to do, you were all in. It didn't matter if you didn't like football, you were going to watch it just because you got to be with them. Do you remember what that was like? I can't live without you, need to be with you every moment of the day. Life doesn't get any better than it is right now. Do you remember your first love? That's what Jesus is saying. He wants us to remember what it was like to experience him for the first time, to be madly in love with him, passionately in love with him. See, the church at Ephesus had had that one time, but, but then they got comfortable and busy and life took over and they neglected their first love. Rick Renner, one of my favorite uh, Greek uh, commentators, says, the word remember here comes from the Greek word, and I won't try to, to pronounce it, but in ancient literature, this word denoted a written record used to memorialize a person's actions, a sepulcher, a statue, a monument, or a tombstone. It's very significant, he says, that the, that, that word can be translated sepulcher. This, this suggests that the Ephesian believers' early experience with Christ had become buried in 30 years of activity. Thus, Jesus urged them to dig through the clutter of their schedules, their routines, and activities so they could remember the vibrant beginning they had had. Like dirt on a grave, the busyness of ministry had buried what was once precious to them. Using the word remember, Jesus implored them to unearth those memories where their faith was tender and new, to dig deep in order to recall and recover their powerful past. Once they remembered, they would be able to see how far they had drifted from the spiritual fervency that had marked their beginnings." interesting that word uh, is in the present active imperative. It was a command for each of us, the subject doing the acting, to remember and to be purposeful and intentional to continually remember the passion and deep love we have for Christ and not let it get buried under the mound of busyness called life. See, that's what happens. You fall madly in love with the Lord and then life takes over and you forget and you neglect that first love. I told you that I was going to be vulnerable tonight and share what the Lord has been teaching me because he's been teaching me from this passage. Uh, this week, I made a very important decision. My, my passion for the Lord, and I have some, <laughs> but it was starting to diminish. It was getting buried under the clutter of my schedule. Uh, my, my life is busy. It's way too busy. And yet I kept saying to the Lord and to everybody around me, all of my accountability around me, I would say to them, everything I'm doing is good. How can I say no to any of it? Look at the fruit that, that's coming from all of these ministries that I'm doing, all these studies I'm doing. Look at how great it is. And yet I could barely, I could barely keep everything going. I could barely keep this, the plates spinning. The Lord was good to me. He would give me sermon after sermon after sermon. But I felt this drawl every morning. I felt him grieve. 
I could feel it inside of me. He was merciful to me. He was so good to me to still give me what I needed. He gave me the energy every single day to do it. Leslie would say to me, Rhea, I don't know how you can keep this up. And I'd be like, the Lord is good. He got this look at the fruit we're seeing from this ministry. And yet, <laughs> we had something happen to our kitchen table. And it's, I don't know what, 22 years old. And, and it, it was uh, still... That table was everything to me because that table for me was a remembrance. It was, it was that memorial that, that, that Rick Renner talked about. It was that monument because I could look at that kitchen table and I could remember every morning, three, four in the morning, the Lord would wake me up out of a dead sleep and he would lure me to that table and I would get my Bible and a cup of coffee and just the silence in our home and it would just be Jesus and me at that table and it was sweet and it was precious and it was life-giving. I, I would sit at that table and eat of the bread of his presence. I would, I would talk to him face to face, and his Holy Spirit would just illuminate his word, and it would be powerful, and it was transforming my life, and I was full of joy everywhere I went. And even though I had a hard, hard life, Nothing got me down because that morning time was so important. So something happened to our table this, this past week and we had to get a new table and it grieved me to see Dave carrying it out, the old one, out to the garage. He's like, should we put it on Craigslist? And I'm like, that table's anointed. <laughs> but this week the Lord said to me, Rhea, you've forsaken your first love. I see all this you're doing. I see those Bible studies. I see those groups. I see the lives being changed. But Rhea, this I hold against you. Forsaken me. You're so busy doing for me. You're getting bogged down in life. You're growly. You're, you're irritable because you don't have any energy left. You're getting sick, Rhea. Everything in your life is, 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 is falling apart because you're so busy. And I just want you at the table. I, I really don't care how many sermons you preach, Rhea. I, I want you at the table, just you and me. What did it for me is I opened up the word of God and I began to read, and for the first time, I think in my life, they were words on a page, just words. I changed chapters and went to a different book and words on a page. I said to Dave, you can pretty much take anything you want from me. Just don't take revelation from me. I don't care if you strip me of everything else. Don't take revelation of your word. I want you to speak to me. Don't take that. Rhea, nevertheless, this I hold against you. Repent and do what you did before or I'll remove your lampstand from you. I'll take the illumination from you because in doing that, it'll make you seek me again. It'll make you say, I'm going the wrong direction. I've got to turn around and go back to that table. I said to Leslie, cancel everything. I don't care who I've let down. I don't care who is offended. Cancel it all. Because I got a table waiting for me. That's where I'm heading. That's all that matters to me. I don't care. Next week you want to be here the week after. Because I'm going to be at the table again. And I'm not just going to preach a sermon. I'm going to come with the overflow. The overflow. My first love who I can't wait to be with, who is everything to me, who makes my heart beat fast just to hear him speak to me, who I want to be better for, who I want to look like and spend all my time with. You see, my life got buried in the sepulcher, in the, the tomb of busyness and a hectic schedule and life happening all around me. And I didn't mean to. I just neglected it first love and he's just standing there have you neglected your first love are you letting tasks that you have to do for the Lord service for the Lord labor for the Lord busyness in life work family get in the way of that first love he says remember from where you've fallen and that word where in some of your translations is whence 
It points back to a different time and a place. Renner says it's intended to draw one's attention back to a time where it came from. I'm telling you, I felt that this week. I saw that kitchen table, and, and he's like, Rhea, remember? Remember from whence you've fallen? Remember, Rhea? He pointed back to the kitchen table, back to that sweet time that I would spend in his presence. Jesus knew his bride had gone cold in her love for him. Can you imagine? I talked to you about Discovery Day for, for the people that we work with. <coughs> Can you imagine knowing the one you love so much and are devoted to is no longer devoted to you? That the one who you adore is no longer passionate about you. That the one who you would give everything to and have given everything to is no, no longer cares about you. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm holding this against you. You see, our decision to neglect him, to walk away from him, to not have him as a companion day in and day out is not just an oversight. It's not just an excuse that I got busy. It's an offense to him. He says, I'm holding this against you. I want you to notice that, that he talks about the Nicolaitans and he says that, that, that their deeds are evil. But he doesn't say, I'm holding this against them. He says, I hate what they're doing. But he's not saying, I'm holding this against you. Your deeds are evil and I'm holding it against you. No, he's holding against the church of Ephesus the fact that they've forsaken their first love. The second thing he tells them to do is to remember from whence they've fallen, but then secondly, to repent. See, that's not a popular message. The Amplified says, remember from, then from what heights you have fallen, repent. Change the inner man to meet God's will. The, that was the classic Amplified. The, just the regular Amplified says, so remember the heights to which you have fallen and repent. Change your inner self, your old way of thinking, your sinful behavior, and seek God's will. Repent means you're going one way and you change directions and do a U-turn, so to speak. Go back to doing what you were doing before, God's way. Repentance is agreeing with God about our sin. It's a change of mind that happens when the human will submits to the will of God. It means to change one's mind, to think differently. I want you to notice that repentance involves a change of the mind, a change of direction. That means we have to forsake and leave the thoughts, the actions, the attitudes that have led us away from pure devotion to Christ. It involves changing directions, receiving God's forgiveness, and renewing our commitment to do the works we did from the start, to love him like we used to. Repent, like I said, is not a popular topic in church today. This week, John Stott, you've heard me say a million times that John Stott is one of my very favorite commentators. And this week, I heard somebody say, I think it was Ravi Zacharias, said that John Stott was one of his friends. And, and he said he, uh, that John Stott would spend two hours a day, intentionally, two hours a day, grieving over his sin. See, for some of you, you're like, Aria, we've been forgiven. You know, we don't need to confess our sin. We, they're already forgiven, past, present, and future. You are so right. That's a work of grace. But you not forget, you're not confessing that sin. Confess means to come into agreement with, to say the same thing as God says about sin. And you don't have to confess them, and you'll still go to heaven, but you'll be an outer court Christian who never gets close to the glory of God. I'm just telling you. He says, repent. This is New Testament. He says, repent. Daily, we need to go before the Lord and examine our hearts and ask him to examine our hearts. I, I say to him almost daily, examine my heart, Lord, and see if there's any wicked way in me. The Bible says we're deceived by the pride of our heart. We don't want to, we don't want to think we have anything wrong in us. I love Psalm 139, 23, and 24. I want to read it to you. Don't turn there. In the Passion Translation, it says, God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. 
Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. This is what I love. See if there's any path of pain I'm walking on. And lead me back to your glorious, everlasting ways. The path that brings me back to you. See, it doesn't matter how much you know, how much scripture you can quote, how talented you are to put a sermon together, how many times you are in a church a week. What matters is have you forsaken your first love? Have you gotten onto a path of pain doing it your way instead of God's way? Have you lost your passion and your desire for him? Are you going through the motions? Are you allowing him to examine your heart daily? And see if you're on a path to pain. <laughs> That's so good. I could park there and just preach on that. Lord, see if I'm on a path to pain. Am I choosing to, to do it my way? To fulfill the lusts of the flesh? To do what I want to do versus what the lover of my soul wants me to do? And is it a path to pain? See, we can be spiritually sophisticated like the church at Ephesus was, yet spiritually powerless because we're entertaining stuff in our life we shouldn't entertain and we're on a path to pain. We've forsaken him. We've said we don't want to do it your way. We want to do it our way. It's time to remember and to repent, church. Turn over to James chapter 1. I promise I'm finishing James chapter 1, we covered this in our James teaching, but I just want to revisit it again tonight for a moment. Hebrews, James, if you get to Hebrews, it's one book behind. James chapter 1, and let's just look at verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in all that he does. He says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness. That word lay aside means to cast off works of darkness. It means to be intentional and purposeful about doing it. It's an act of the will to lay aside those deeds of darkness. Lay aside all filthiness. That word all means radically all. It means any and every of every kind. It means that your situation and what you're doing is not the exception that doesn't need laid aside. Lay aside all filthiness. That word filthiness means that which makes filthy, defiles, or dishonor. It means moral defilement. It means are you doing something that dishonors your first love? Are you doing something that makes you feel filthy? Are you doing something that defiles you morally? Lay it aside. Lay it aside. Then he says... Lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. That word overflow is fascinating to me. If you look it up in the original language, it means residue. It means the remains of the wickedness remaining over in a Christian from his state prior to conversion. The wickedness remaining over in a Christian from his state prior to conversion. This word was used by the Greeks when they wanted to describe excess wax in one's ears. It means the things I've turned a deaf ear to. Lord, I know you want me to get rid of that. I know you don't want me to do that, but I'm just turning a deaf ear to it. Got wax in my ears, Lord. The word wickedness means badness. It's the opposite of excellence, anything excellent. It means the desire to injure. I wonder if there's anyone here that has a desire to injure another done dirty, maybe you've been hurt severely, and as a result, you lash out and you use your mouth to injure another. James says, get rid of that. Lay it aside. It means wickedness that's not ashamed to break God's laws. It means evil or trouble. And he says, get rid of all that stuff and receive. And, and we talked about that word receive and how it is to answer the door and invite a visitor in, to welcome somebody into your house, to not refuse intercourse with. 
If I was going to have intercourse with somebody, it means I'm intimate with them. It means get intimate with the word of God and plant it in you. It means don't refuse it. It means to welcome God's word into your life and get rid of that other garbage. It says to receive with meekness. And oh, I have to stop and just give you that definition of meekness. Receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which has the power to save your soul, your mind, your will, your emotion. You see, some of you are here tonight, and you're tormented in your mind. You're tormented by your emotions that are all over the place. You're tormented by your thought life. And, and James is saying to you, I have, a, I have an answer to that. I have a solution for that. Receive. Welcome as a guest. Be hospitable to it. Open the door of your heart to the word of God because it has the power, the power to deliver, to save, to rescue your mind, your will, your emotions. That's a good word. But he says you have to receive with meekness that implanted word. The word meekness there means uh, the disposition of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good. And therefore, without disputing or resisting. That means God sends a word out to get implanted in you. Whether it's at your kitchen table in the morning or here on Monday night or in your church on Sunday. He sends that word out. And he says, Karen, I want you to look at this in your life. I want you to lay aside something and I'm sending my word. I'm sending it to heal your mind. I'm sending it to heal your emotions. I'm sending it to set you free. It has the power to do that. But you have to accept it without disputing or resisting it. You have to understand it's coming from a God who knows what's best for you. And that you're not going to refute it. You're not going to dispute it. You're going to humbly receive it. And let it get implanted in you. It says humbly receive the, the implanted word of God. That means implanted by others' instructions or by the Lord himself. Because it's able. It has the power to save your soul, to deliver you. The word of God implanted in us brings conviction and it affects our mind. We see it in that scripture. It has the power to affect your mind. That's what happens when the word of God gets implanted in me and it affects my mind. It starts to bring conviction in my heart. And it brings repentance then as a natural result. The word repentance, when he says repent, it's a compound word. If you miss everything else I said tonight, don't miss this. It's a compound word, the word repent. It, it's, it comes from the word meta, which means to wage war with or to change. And nos, which means mind. To wage war with the mind. Oh, somebody didn't get that. It means to change, repentance means to change the mind, but it means I'm going to wage war with my mind. My mind is saying, go do this. My mind's saying, please yourself this way, but I'm going to wage war with my mind and I'm going to repent and do what I did at first to wage war with. That's what, he, that's what repentance does. It begins in the mind, not the emotions. See, some of you are not repenting because your emotions are getting involved, got to wage war with the mind. It becomes a rational decision to change ourselves and our way, a conscious decision to turn away from sin and self-centeredness and towards God and his ways. Look back to, I'm finishing, Acts chapter 2, Acts and then there's Romans chapter 2, verses uh, 37 and 38. Peter was preaching to the crowd, and he's preaching a, a hard message. And, and, and the word says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. The word says that Peter was preaching and they were cut to the heart. That word cut there means to be pricked. It's a compound word. It means to dig deep, to dig deep, to prick or to pierce. Pierce and dig deep, to prick and dig deep. They were cut to the heart. The heart is the mind, the will, the emotions. Are you following me? Peter was preaching the word. And as the word was going forth, it was piercing hearts. It was cutting past the mind, the will, the emotions. And it was pricking and digging deep into those areas. That's why we're in the word of God, to do that. 
The word says that when Peter was preaching, his words deeply pierced them. They were stabbed to the core by his message, and that caused them to feel pain. But pain, none of us likes pain, but, but pain always tells us something's wrong and it needs attention. And the only way to get rid of the pain is to find out what's causing it and remove it. So Peter, when he was preaching the word of God, they were pricked and pained deep within their soul. And they said, what should we do with this pain? And Peter said, here's how you get it out. Repent. Davy and I were flying home from Colorado uh, today. And uh, Davy looked over at me and he was helping Don get some wood the other day. And he didn't have gloves on because he told me, real men don't wear gloves. <laughs> Sorry, bud. <laughs> and so he's holding his hand all day, all weekend. And, and finally, he said to me today, Rhea, I need you to get these splinters out of my hand. He said, it's really hurting. And I'm like, Davey, why didn't you wear gloves? And that's where that real men don't wear gloves came in. But, but he, they were hurting him. They were, the, 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 the splinter, the wood had pierced his skin and they had embedded in him. And he said, you know, Ria, I need you to, to get those out. And so he went upstairs and, and he got a needle and he sterilized it and he brought my, um, my uh, tweezers. All right. And my grandma magnifying glass. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> he brings it down the steps and he's like, Ria, you know grandmas use this. <laughs> I am one. <laughs> and proud of it. So I take his hand and, and his hand's calloused. He's a real man and doesn't wear gloves. <laughs> and he has calluses in his hand, and the, the splinters are underneath the callus. And so I was kind of excited. I, I got my grandma magnifying glass, and I dug, and I pierced that callus skin with the needle. And, and I dug out that splinter, and it hurt him. And I was like, baby, a little pain now. It's going to get rid of the big pain later. And this is not going to get infected if we get this out of there now. And so we, we got rid of those splinters, and, and they didn't hurt him any longer. Some of you are with me already. Peter could have preached a fine-sounding message that would have tickled their ears, a feel-good message that would have temporarily covered up and numbed that pain. He could have never addressed the issue that was really causing them pain. But he understood that the root needed removed. It needed identified so that it could be removed. And he helped them by preaching the word of God, pricking, pricking their life with the word of God, digging deep in their hearts with the word of God. And then the removal, they said, what should we do? And he said, repent. The removal came with repentance. That sharp, double-edged sword did the work of digging deep. The word cut there could also mean to sting. You see, Dave's hands were so, they were so calloused that he didn't feel the prick of that needle till I got deep. And even didn't feel it much at all because he was so calloused. Oh, church. I was talking to Papa, to Dave's dad, about some of the people that we work with and why divorce is ever an option. And, and he said to me, Rhea, God said that he permits divorce where there's hardness of heart. Rhea, I know you don't like to hear this, he said, but sometimes people's hearts are so hardened, they won't ever change. I said, Papa, I disagree with that. 89-year-old theologian, best preacher I know, but I'm going to disagree with Because I think when you dig deep enough, even the hardest, most calloused hearts through repentance can change. That's why I preach the way I preach. Now preach till nobody comes. I will not compromise the message I'm preaching to make you feel good. God did not compromise in my life this week. He said, Rhea, you can keep doing what you're doing, but I'm going to remove the lampstand. I could have calloused my heart to that. I could have said, no, Lord, it's all good. I'm just going to keep pushing through. Some Monday nights, I preach the gospel. I send the word out. 
There are hearts that are hardened. That it bounces right off. It doesn't prick and cut deep. People leave. Never coming. People always say, I I don't want to get beat up. I'm not beating you up. I'm preaching the gospel that has the power to save your soul, to deliver your emotions, to, to rescue your mind, to deliver your whole soul. Amen. They were pricked to the heart and said, what must we do? And he said, repent. We have to get to a place where we're broken over our sin. Uh, David said, a broken and contrite heart God will never despise. The voice, that scripture says, what can I offer you, Lord, but a broken spirit? Because a broken spirit, oh God, a heart that honestly regrets the past, you won't detest. Repentance has grown cold in the church today. We no longer preach it. We no longer desire to do it. He says, remember, repent, and then repeat. Do the first works all over again. I want you to notice it says first works. It doesn't say first emotions. Not first feelings, first works. Works denote effort. It, It requires something. It requires work. You can't wish it into being. Do the first works. That means Study the word of God. It means pray. It means seek his face. It it means do things that deepen your intimacy with God. Be intentional about it. We work with a lot of marriages, and some of them go to divorce court. and, And I always say to the people as they're headed to divorce court, do you remember first love? Do you remember when you fell in love with this person? Do you remember what you did to win them? Do what you did before. Be intentional. Be intentional about doing what you did to win them. Do be intentional about doing what you did when you first fell in love with them. You were first passionately in love with them. And just like marriage, if you go back and do those things you did when your marriage was strong, it'll get strong again. But people always say this, I don't feel love for them anymore, Rhea. Come on, grow up. Love is not a feeling. It's a decision. It's a commitment. It is a commitment. Somebody say, love is a commitment. I don't feel in love anymore. Not, we, aren't, we aren't motivated by our feelings. We're motivated by our commitment. By our commitment. He says, do the things you did before. What did you do the first time you came to Christ? You prayed all the time. You repented quickly. You kept short accounts. You tried to be loving and kind. You you read his word. You were excited about going to church. Then make the decision to do those things again. He says, do what you did at first. And then in verse 7, he says, he who is able to hear, let him listen. I could have cried when I read that. He who's able to hear. There's some people that just don't want to hear. Because of that hardness of heart, Dave's calloused hand, you don't feel the prick. He says, to him who overcomes, that word overcomes implies that there's something to overcome. There's a conflict taking place that has to be overcome. There's a war that's taken place that needs to be overcome. It implies that there'll be a battle to do this. It'll have to be a battle that takes place to win. I have to battle to, 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 to remember my first love and to do what I did at first, to not forsake him, to, to not let the busyness of life take over. It'll be a battle. But to him who overcomes, he says, I will give. Look at what Revelation 2 says there. It says, to he who overcomes, I will give to eat him from the, I will give to, to eat from the tree of life. To him who overcomes. God's word translation there says, let the person who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, I will give the privilege of eating from the tree of life. You see, when we make him our priority and we live that life of repentance and remembering, we'll eat from that tree of life. We will experience life at a whole new level. He says, or I'll remove the lampstand. If you're here tonight and you got to a place where I was, where you're reading the word of God and eating of the bread of his presence, it's stale. It's dry. 
Remember, we talked about that bread never, ever, in seven days, never got stale. That's a miracle. God's word, if it's stale to you, repent and return. Ask him to bring illumination, to bring understanding, to tend your, your, your to trim your wicks, to remove whatever is keeping your lampstand from glowing brightly, and to refill your lamp with oil. A lamp that's run out of oil won't burn brightly. Maybe what you need tonight is just a, a refilling of the Holy The Bible says, be ye filled. It's a continuous, ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. It means, my mama used to say to me, reposition your, yourself under the spout where the glory comes out. It means be intentional about saying, Lord, fill me up. I want to be filled. I want a continuous, ongoing filling of your sweet Holy Spirit. If I'm going to go out and be a light in a dark place, I need your Holy Spirit illumination. I need a filling from your Holy Spirit to do that. If I'm going to be able to understand this word, Lord God, I need you to illuminate it. I need a filling of your Holy Spirit. My lamp needs trim. My wicks need trim, Lord God. You got to get rid of this stuff that's dimming my light. I, I, I'm just going to fall before you, Lord, and just repent right now. Trim my wick, Lord. Fill me up, Lord. I'm going to return and do what I did before. This marriage right here is wonderful. I'm intentional every day. I'm intentional to so into Dave, I'm intentional to speak words of life into Dave. I'm intentional to serve Dave, to please Dave. I'm always thinking about Dave. When our marriage gets into trouble is when I'm busy with my own stuff and I don't have time for Dave. Not that I want to neglect him, it's just busyness has taken over. The things, I was teaching a group of, of married couples and we were talking about that, being intentional about time together, being intentional about speaking words of life, being intentional about communicating with one another and what that looks like. The same is true with our, our relationship with Christ. We have to be intentional. We have to communicate and keep those, those lines of communication open. We have to, to serve him well. We have to love being with him and let him know that we love being with him. We have to honor him, respect him. I hold on to every word. This man is a man of few words, but when he speaks, I listen because, oh, quiet waters run deep. God speaks, I listen. First love. You don't want to do anything to hurt them. I'm going to ask Ian to come and close. And I just really want to challenge you tonight. Some of you have told me that you read the word of God and it's just dead to you. This would encourage you to take the remedy that Jesus gives. Remember from whence you've fallen. Repent. And do the first works. Remember, it's works. Sorry, works people. Rock on with your bad self, but it's works. It's effort. It's striving I'm intentional about getting into his presence. That, that other stuff is outer court stuff. And I'm going deep. I remember the first works. And I do them all over again. So I just want to pray for you as Ian closes. And Father, I just thank you for my brothers and my sisters here. You're such a good, good father. And we are loved by you. That doesn't depend on performance. We can't earn that, Lord. We don't deserve that. It's an act of grace, a gift of grace, free gift. We're so grateful for that tonight, Lord. Father, in the busyness of life, in the hustle and bustle of life, in all the things we have to do, raise our family, go to work, be with friends, 
run errands, watch TV. Lord, I wonder if there's anyone here tonight that would say, buried underneath all of that, they would realize they've forsaken, neglected their first love. Father, for them, I pray that you would do a stirring inside of them tonight, that you would give them a hunger and a thirst for the things of God again, that you would restore unto us, Lord, the joy of our salvation and renew our right spirit, Lord, within us. I pray, Lord, for a fresh infilling of your sweet Holy Spirit. From the top of our heads, Lord, to the tips of our toes, I pray that you would just fill us tonight, Lord. Fill us. I pray, Lord, for the things that are keeping our our wicks from burning brightly. The things that are causing our light to grow dim. Father God, I pray that tonight the high priest... Christ himself would trim those wicks, Lord. That through an act of repentance, Lord, you'd remove those impurities. Lord, we're sorry. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us, that washes us. Force, Lord God, renews and refreshes. Lord, I want to pray for passion right now, the passion of a first love. I see all around me, Lord, people going from relationship to relationship to relationship, wanting to find the one thing that fulfills, wanting to find the one thing that satisfies. Oh, you don't satisfy, so I'll leave you and I'll go find something else. Father, I thank you that you are the bread, the sustenance, the only thing that will satisfy of life. You are the lover of our souls. You are the priority, the first love, the highest in rank, the highest in honor, the chief love, the only one that can satisfy. Forgive us, Lord, for searching any place else for what only you can give. Breathe breath of life, new life into each one. Stir a passion, stir a hunger, stir a desire, Lord, to know you better, to love you more. I pray that they'd feel the warmth of your embrace. That they'd have a deeper knowledge of the love of God and how there's absolutely nothing they could ever do to separate themselves from it. Why wouldn't you want to return to that? Lord, we love you. We give you glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name.